0: Hello and welcome to this episode of Let's Talk About by Kangaroo Minds. Our topic for today centers around mental health within the Indian legal context. I'm Vedika and today we have with us Asavri Soni. Asavri is a lawyer who chooses to focus on mental health and human rights and she's also a certified yoga instructor, a sports enthusiast, a user survivor and aids with informal psychosocial support. Before we begin our conversation, however, we'd like to put out a trigger warning for our audience. If at any point during this conversation, should you find yourself feeling triggered or distressed, please take a step back and look after yourself. Should you need additional support resources, you can also find them on our website. And now without taking much time, let's dive in to hear more from Asavri. Asavri, first of all, welcome to the episode. And we're looking forward to your insights throughout the conversation i'm just going to start with the first question which i think you know a lot of people have within the indian mental health context and within the legal framework what are some of the rights which someone with a mental health condition has and what protection is available to them you know under the ambit of the law so vedika we had had a discussion
1: on this in our previous podcast as well When we consider a person who's living with a mental health condition, or we talk about someone who has a mental health disability, there are rights that are to be protected when it comes to their health condition. And these are covered under the scope of the Mental Health Act 2017. So you have have rights like the right to community living, making your advanced directive, appointing a nominated representative on your behalf, the right to your confidentiality, to name a few. Mm -hmm. Now, when you ask a question like how a person with mental health conditions is protected under the ambit of the law, I, I take that to be a more general question. And I will say that any person who lives with a mental health condition should have the same rights as any other citizen with any other health condition in this country. So a citizen or an individual living with a mental health condition, if they feel that they have been harmed in any way, they can take relief under a number of acts which are, of course, that recourse is available to any citizen of this country. Whether you consider the Indian Penal Code, you consider the Protection of Human Rights Act, you consider the Domestic Violence Act or protection under the Indian constitution, it is open to them just as any other citizen. However, if we talk about protection when it comes specifically or when it's related to their mental health condition or to their health condition, then of course we go back to the Mental Health Care Act of 2017, which lays down very specific rights, which should not be violated when it comes to Uh, a person who's living with a mental health disability or a mental health condition. For example, they have the right to access mental health care at all times. They have the right to protect information about their mental illness from, you know, people at large. They have the right to be protected from any kind of cruel or degrading or abusive treatments. They have the right to be protected from prohibited procedures and psychosurgery. They also have the right to be voluntarily admitted as independent patients. So this comes, you know, this kind of connects with their mental health care rights. So if you're talking about their health conditions specifically, I would say the Mental Health Care Act is good recourse. If it is harm in other ways, you could probably take additional
0: protection of the of other legislation, right. as I mentioned. Okay. Yes. Also, so you know, you mentioned a couple of things that they have a right to do, just as anyone else. Do people with a mental health condition have the right to vote in India?
1: Uh, well, yes, they do. People with a mental health condition do have the right to vote in India, and they should be encouraged to exercise this right. The arguments that were made for, or the arguments that were made against allowing people with mental health conditions to vote, I think they come from a place of um, stigma and institutionalized discrimination. And there isn't really any scientific or logical basis for people to be uh, prohibiting persons with a mental illness to cast their vote. Um, The representation of people's act does state that somebody who is of unsound mind should not be allowed or will not be allowed to cast their vote. However, this concept of an unsound mind, it's not a medical concept. It's more of a legal concept. And surprisingly, majority of acts make no mention or rather they make a mention, but they do not go ahead and define what an unsound mind is. So the Indian contract act, which is one of the first pieces of legislation that we get to study when we are entering law school does Mm -hmm. talk about or gives a basic kind of definition for an unsound mind stating that a person is said to be of unsound mind. If at the time that they are taking a decision or they're entering into a contract, they are incapable of understanding the nature of the process that is going on. Mm. And they are also unable to understand what the consequences of a decision like this would be on their interest or or on the interest of those around them. However, the act does make a very important statement that a person of unsound mind can make decisions or can enter into contract in periods when he is of sound mind so if we okay. are considering a you know a definition like this this becomes a very very important provision so th- this unfair assumption that any person who lives with a mental illness is automatically equal to a person of and you know, has an, is an unsound person. However, the mental health care act of 2017 actually states that if there is a person who lives with a mental illness or a mental health disability, that does not automatically deem that such a person is of unsound mind, until and unless of course, they are declared so by a competent court who is permitted to make a diagnosis or to pass a judgment of such or such sorts. And whether you consider a booth officer or you consider an electoral officer, they cannot disallow a person with a mental health condition from casting their vote or having their name included in the electoral register. And of course, if there is somebody who comes up and says, this is including an electoral officer, that, you know, XYZ person is of unsound mind. You know, he's incapable of understanding what he's doing. Then the burden of proving that XYZ is of unsound mind falls upon such person who's claiming it. So it is not the responsibility of a person with a mental illness to go before court and justify that. No, no, I know the decision I'm taking. I'm well aware. In fact, uh, studies have have been conducted which have shown that even persons with chronic mental illnesses do understand and grasp the idea or the concept of voting and are able to freely exercise their choices. So definitely voting is something that cannot and should not be taken away from the decision-making ambit of a person who's living with a mental health condition.
0: So you already answered the question I was going to ask you next, which is, you know, around the phrase unsound mind, but you know, you mentioned one thing that the burden of proof lies on the person who's putting that sort of an accusation that ABC is of unsound mind. So how exactly is that proven, you know, in court, that somebody is of unsound mind? Well,
1: um, this is something that is yet to come up in the professional arena of the law. I have not come across a case as of now in my experience, and my practice, where I would be given an exposure to watch a proceeding of this nature or to, or to understand. Right. But uh, if and when I do get the opportunity, I would actually love to come back and have this discussion with you again.
0: Another term that, you know, for instance, you mentioned, you know, when we talk about unsound mind, is the stigma even that term carries, right? Like an unsound mind suddenly becomes an unsound person. So moving that forward in the space of mental health, particularly, and in a legal context, what is the role that, you know, semantics and our language plays? A great question, actually. You know, legal
1: language and the kinds of terminologies that we use and we hear around us can actually be the difference between either cementing or breaking barriers to mental health care and treatment. Legal language impacts all of us. There's no doubt about it. We are constantly absorbing information. We are constantly consuming content, whether through newspapers, whether through news channels, and there are certain terminologies that the community is so used to. We're also used to hearing them and using them that we don't give it a second thought.
0: Yeah.
1: I, I actually uh, listed a few examples of terms like this. Um, we can go back to the unsound mind concept. Now, when we were in law school, unsound mind or a person of unsound mind is a term that we've been hearing from very early years of law school. Of course, yeah.
0: Even in school, right, it's such a huge part of our, um, you know, the civics portion, that yes. like someone with unsound mind can't do, you know, you can't run for public office, or like you can't enter into a contract, you can't get into a partnership, so there's so many things that the person can't do. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And at that time,
1: even I didn't give it a second thought. I didn't even realize that this is not a well-defined, a well-researched concept, you know, and there are so many, you know, professionals who are, who are studying this, you know, we're studying this, we're coming out into the field. We tend to speak the same language with people who are not from the legal fraternity either. Mm. And, you know, then you realize that this is not an appropriate term, much later we come to know it's not appropriate. There is so much of then conscious effort to correct your own vocabulary, you know, inform the people around you. And instances of when the Hindu Marriage Act, for example, says that, you know, being of unsound mind or hiding a fact of mental illness or a mental health disability can become grounds for divorce never thought about it. We never really thought how this could be impacting all of our lives, you know, at a later stage and how, you know, language really kinds of kind of puts an idea into your mind that, okay, this is what I you know, this is something to watch out for even. Then another instance, is how slowly of course, the shift from the term committed suicide. You know, we're yeah. moving on to more appropriate more sensitive terminology like taking someone took their life or someone died by suicide and I think it's so important to make these shifts in the language of the law because then an act like suicide is not viewed from a criminality lens it is not something that is looked at from an offense perspective even um, the term for example in the in previous years there have been mental health legislations or even conversations among professionals where the term asylum has been used very freely very freely and now we have that replaced with terms like mental health establishments or institutions and you know just that the term asylum puts yeah. so much of a barrier between a person even trying to seek help for a mental health condition or something that they might be struggling with. And for that matter, Vedika, even today, there are a few acts in India, in other parts of the world, which, you know, we have a title to the section and it says things like, or it has said in the past, how to deal with a lunatic. So it will be talking about a procedure. It will be talking Mm -hmm. about and a criminal procedure, for example, and it is state how do you deal with the lunatic, right? Now, in essence, I mean, the moment you read read it, it is something that kind of jars out, right? It's right in your face, yeah. and then we don't even realize it. We're learning, we're studying, it's going on and on and on. So, it it, it is very problematic, and the law at times can be very binding. It gives us this sense of finality, you know, a a very serious or something of a very serious nature. And we forget that, you know, amendments are around for a reason. You know, sometimes the terms or the words that are spoken of or written in the spirit of the language of the law can actually turn out to be very harsh or counterproductive. I think everybody, needs to keep moving with the times along with the law to make sure that the language that we're including in our legislations remains appropriate, remains up-to-date, remains inclusive. And this is something that needs to flow downward. So we start from school. You know, certain acts like the IPC, the Indian Constitution, for that matter, even the Mental Health Act, they are legislations that most people will come into some kind of contact with or interaction with at some point in their life. I think, you know, the Indian Contract Act, you know, evolving the language in these legislations so that it has a more positive impact, whether we're talking about schools or we're talking about professional institutions. Teaching students the amendment to legal language, it's very important so that we're taking... More informed students, professionals at the end of the day, just holistically well-informed human beings. So I think definitely legal language is exceptionally important and teaching appropriate legal language and terminologies to everyone is, is very, very important.
0: Another thing that I wanted to ask you in terms of, you know, like now let's move to the actual hearing part of these cases, for instance. So are there any special courts or any assigned judges who actually hear these cases? Well, yes, uh, Vedika. Uh,
1: I, I believe that, you know, owing to the private and confidential and at times very sensitive and vulnerable nature of mental health law cases, there are special courts which are to be set up which will assess mental health law cases. Now, these are not like our our ordinary, ordinary rather the other courts that we see all over our country. These courts are known as mental health review boards. Okay. And it's actually the responsibility of the various state mental health authorities across India to set up these review boards. So they can go about it two ways. Either they can have one review board for every district. I mean, that's, it it almost seems like a pipe dream, but you know, that is what would be ideal or to maybe club a few districts together and have one review board for them. And um, this review board actually works on a panel system. So there is a, a number of members who sits on a panel to assess a mental health law, application or a complaint that is made you will have either a serving or a district judge who will be the chairperson of this panel you will have a representative of either the district collector or the district magistrate you will have one psychiatrist you will have one medical professional and you'll have two other members now these two members are members of the community Mm -hmm. so they can either be two persons with mental illness or user survivors or they can be two people who are caregivers or they can be two people from an NGO that represents uh, any of these interest groups or works in the field of mental health care or you can have a combination of any of the three. So this is what the panel would look like and this is where your mental health law applications
0: are assessed. So when it comes to, you know, like these assessments or to actually handle these cases, do the judges involved or the lawyers or even the panel members have to undergo any sort of special training before that?
1: Um, uh, See, uh, the Mental Health Act does say that whether whichever uh, mental health authority we are looking at, whether at the level of the center or the state level, they are actually tasked with, Uh, providing training to all relevant professionals or all relevant persons which includes law enforcement officials like the police, it includes mental health professionals and other medical or healthcare professionals. Now I am hoping that this definition would include lawyers and judges who are dealing with matters of mental health. Mm -hmm. So I have not come across a separate provision in the act, which says that, you know, lawyers and judges are to be trained specifically in the area or the provisions of the mental health law. Um, That being said, I am aware that mental health advocates and experts in the field of mental health law are either taking initiatives or are being approached to train sections and groups of lawyers and judges in the provisions of this Act. I'm hopeful that the people who are working in the field on a day-to-day basis are taking the extra effort to remain updated
0: and well-versed with the provisions of the law. Right. So another thing I wanted to ask you was that, you know, in terms of attending these hearings, like for instance, are they open to public Okay, you know, are there any guidelines for instance, on who can attend to them?
1: Right. Again, like, as we uh, mentioned, as we had just discussed, the nature of these cases of mental health law mm-hmm. cases is very different. So unlike um, most other courts in this country, where the public can go and view or spectate on a matter, mental health law proceedings or the ones which are conducted before your state authorities or uh, the review boards are to be conducted in camera, which would mean that they are not open to the general public. Okay. Right. Now, if there is a person who is not directly involved with the case, but needs to be present there or wants to be present there, then an application has to be made to the board that, you know, I would like to, be in the in the room I would like to be present there during the proceedings and the consent of the person who has a mental illness or who has the mental health condition has to be taken and the chairperson of the board also has to sign off on this application that yes it is okay for this person to be present in the room if they are not directly involved in the matter so it is not open to the
0: general public okay So also, like, you know, one thing which we spoke about earlier is key, you know, mental health care establishments and mental health care homes. So are there any laws or guidelines that sort of govern the practices and, you know, the running of these institutions?
1: Yes, uh, the Mental Health Act of 2017 has taken steps uh, in this direction. Now, uh, whether we're uh, addressing governments or we are addressing the authorities at either of the levels they do have to uh, draft rules for the functioning of mental health establishments now of course this includes but is not limited to time-to-time inspections of these establishments drafting uh, service and quality norms and provisions creating a mechanism for people to report a deficiency in service, maintaining a list of all registered mental health establishments as well as mental health professionals in a particular area. So there there are are rules which are in place to kind of keep a check on mental health establishments. Yes. Okay.
0: Now, you know, just moving forward now to like, you know, the individual... Themselves or like people who have a mental health condition. There are a lot of misconceptions which link, you know, people who suffer from mental health illnesses, saying that they are more likely to commit crimes. So can you throw a little more light, you know, on the validity of that, you know, belief? Um, well,
1: Vedika historically, I think uh, coming from a place of a lack of understanding of what a mental illness is, yeah. this unfair and incorrect, you know, assumption was kind of drawn that, or it was perceived that a person who has a mental health condition automatically becomes dangerous, becomes a risk to society and to, you know, to their own self, and they are violent, and that they are violent. This was very widely accepted and unfortunately this is something that continues to kind of lurk in the shadows when people speak about persons with mental illness and I think from this place came a lot of uh, provisions in mental health legislations in the past and you know even the mental health practices the care practices which were very oppressive you know there was in the name of mental health care and treatment, heavy sedation, use of seclusions, use of restraints, Mm. um, involuntary institutionalization, abusive and degrading methods altogether, not a great, not a great picture. I also personally have an issue with the way cinema and the media portrays mental illness or portrays a person with a mental health condition. Correct. Most of the portrayals that we see today are either sensationalized Mm -hmm. or they come from a place of misinformation or and you know people are grossly misrepresented when it comes to the screen
0: Mm -hmm. which
1: of course hasn't helped the overall situation when it comes to mental health care and treatment. Most of the time, the content that is put out for a larger audience to do portrays persons with a mental health condition, either as manic depressives or a person who is suicidal or a person who is violently or dangerously bipolar or a person who is going through some kind of psychosis, which I think is so wrong. It is so wrong. And it means that people who are consuming this content over time get accustomed to this thought that, you know, if a person has a mental health condition or they have a mental illness, they're, they're dangerous, right? As a result of which, persons who are living with a mental illness are either shunned or hmm. they're ostracized. And it's very problematic. Now, sure. policymakers, or persons who are in positions of power at the end of the day are also people. So it is not a big leap to assume that they could also sway with such portrayals. you know, the tendency is there, which again means that people with mental illnesses or persons with mental health disabilities are viewed from a criminal lens, you know, capable of committing violence, capable of, Um, capable of committing crime or people who are incapable of understanding anything whatsoever. And Vedika, you, you may have noticed this that even within our communities in everyday conversations, you know, I am at times very shocked to hear that when news of a rape or a very gruesome killing or a murder comes to light, I have heard people make statements like this one must be sick in the head which is why they did it Hmm. or you know this person he's a psycho or he's insane and that obviously as a person who's hearing this you kind of draw this analogy that you know only a person who's sick mentally sick or mentally ill is automatically capable of committing a crime like this in actuality the real situation is that a person who lives with a mental health disability is far more likely to be a victim of or on the receiving end of crime abuse or violence and very and not as much the perpetrators of crime i think it's important for the narrative to be flipped at all levels whether in conversation whether in portrayals There is there, there
0: is a very, very
1: immediate need for
0: change of the narrative. Right. And I feel like that's that's an entire conversation in itself, you know, like how media and how content sort of furthers that stigma. Absolutely. But just yeah. moving yeah. forward with that idea, like let's say someone with a mental health condition actually commits a crime. So in that case, would there be any special considerations which are taken in their trial, or would they be viewed as equal, you know, in the eyes of the law? Okay, uh, so I, I'll just take down this
1: question and that there are a few facets to the answer as well. Now, in many countries, it was observed that, you know, law enforcement machineries were rooting pretty actively against persons with mental illnesses. So they were being arrested or they were being detained or punished for minor offenses. Right. In fact, a few years ago, the WHO put out a report on prison and mental health, which said and addressed that in how some parts of the world prisons have become a dumping ground for persons with mental illnesses. Yeah. All parts of this are problematic. Now, when we are considering, since we are speaking specifically of crime and punishment. Now under the Indian penal code, you know, it's safe that a person who is committing a crime and by reason of unsoundness of mind, Hmm. not knowing the nature of the action, not knowing the nature of the consequence or incapable of understanding the same, then that would not be viewed as an offense. Okay. That being said, whether special considerations are being taken at the time of trial or not would depend on a case-to-case basis, would depend from jurisdiction to jurisdiction and how well the law is being interpreted and applied. When we consider the Criminal Procedure Code, it does state, now when we are talking about trial, since the question was very specific, that if a judge finds that a person who has who has been brought before him or her is someone with a mental health condition, or you know is claiming unsoundness of mind, then in that case, the judge can direct that said person will be diagnosed or be um, looked at by a crim- uh, by a civil surgeon a civil surgeon to kind of check out the base or primary facts of the case. You know, mm-hmm. now, if the civil surgeon comes back and says that, yes, then there is reason to believe that this person is struggling with a mental health condition, etc. Then the person would be directed mm-hmm. by the judge to go and get assessed by a psychiatrist or a psychologist.
0: Right. They will carry
1: out their assessment if the finding still stands that yes this person is say i'm sorry whatever the vocabulary they may be using at that point of time then the judge would have two options the first option is the judge will go over all the facts and findings and diagnosis everything related to the case and this person if the judge feels that you know uh, a case is not real no strong case is being made out against this person, considering all things considered, then such a person would be discharged and be directed that, you know, take psychiatric help or get onto the path of recovery and treatment. However, if the judge feels that, you know, all things considered, this person does have a case against them, then the judge is going to direct that such a person seek treatment pending trial, which means that there will be a pause on the trial for a certain period of time. This person will be sent for mental health care improvement. And once it is established that this person is now in a sound frame of mind or is capable of understanding the nature of the proceedings that are going to take place, trial, whether for him or against him, in this case, against him, then the uh, the judicial proceedings would resume. The person would be brought before the judge again. And um, the, the proceedings will pick, off, pick up where they left us.
0: Right. So another thing is that you know, should there be somebody in custody or who's being interrogated or even someone who's been convicted of a crime who has a mental health condition? you know, is there any support that is given to them at that time? And you know, how does the law sort of protect their rights during that period as someone with mental health illnesses?
1: Yeah, so a person um, with now we're assuming this is a person with a mental health condition or a mental health Mm -hmm. disability and they're being interrogated. Now, for any person, the CRPC states that at the time of interrogation, Mm -hmm. they do have The right to have an advocate of their choice present in the interrogation, at least a part of the interrogation, if not the full complete interrogation. Now, there are no additional comments on this. So I can't say with certainty whether this would include or accommodate the presence of mental health support Mm -hmm. or a medical professional in the room. I cannot say with certainty. And um, yes, like, when we consider prisoners with mental health, there are a few rights which are spelled out under the mental health care act of 2017. Uh, Examples of these include that a prisoner who is pending trial with a mental health condition Mm -hmm. should be accommodated in the psychiatric ward of the medical wing of a prison and not with all the other prisoners. Right. They should have the right to both basic and emergency mental health care, either administered by a mental health professional or by the medical officer in charge of the prison. Then they also have the right to be transferred to a mental health establishment if the prison is not able to accommodate for their health condition. And of course, authorities are required to inspect the condition of these uh, mental health wings or um, the psychiatric wards of mental health wings in prisons from time to time to ensure that things are in compliance with mm-hmm.
0: act and with the standards. of care. I think, you know, my last question to you for today in this regard would be the implications of the insanity defense, because we've spoken a lot about, you know, how they should be treated um, you know, should they have a mental health condition and how, you know, like there are separate wards for them or, you know, what support can be given to them if, like during trial or how the court, the system would view them. But when it comes to the insanity defense being used and let's say it's proven in court, what are the implications of that on the person who's been convicted?
1: Okay. So again, I I think this would be a twofold answer. Now, on the first hand, when we're talking about the insanity defense, when we we consider sentencing or conviction and crime and punishment, an integral part of that is the concept of mens rea, which means guilty mind, which means that the person with knowledge and with intention, created or caused harm. That is one part of it. Now, also that the person had knowledge and intention, uh, knowledge and information about the consequences of an act of this nature. Hmm. Now, the basis for claiming the insanity defense is that a person did not have the requisite competence or capacity or information that what he or she was doing was wrong. That is one part of the answer. Now, second part, when we consider implications, there is a misunderstanding amongst a lot of people uh, in the community that an insanity, you know, claiming the insanity defense would mean that a person is acquitted of all crimes. Right. There is there is no, you know, there is nothing beyond that. You just claim this and right, you just have to prove it. Um which consequently gives people an impression that if we commit an offense and if we claim this defense, then we walk away with a reduced or discharged sentence. We don't really have anything to worry about, which gives an unfair picture that a person with mental health conditions, if committing an offense, will never be held accountable for their actions. So that's the that's the flip side. And some almost you know this is a free pass out of jail so it's like we just claim it and we, we wash our hands off. Now the reality of this situation of course is very grim and far removed from public perceptions of, of this of claiming this defense. So I have not had the chance to interact with a with a prisoner with mental health conditions as of now. From whatever I have learned or been taught or read what ends up happening when a person claim when a prisoner claims or or a, a person claims the insanity defense is that they would be directed to a mental health establishment for treatment pending trial as as we saw we are well aware about the internal situation of how mental health establishments are. Mm. It's not fairyland. land. We know a lot of oppressions are taking place. We know a lot of cruelty is taking place. And in, in many cases, what ends up happening is that these prisoners, they actually end up instead of treatment and recovery, they end up serving sentences in these mental health establishments far longer than they would have had they, you know, had it been the sentence of the alleged crime or the crime, Okay. which means that a lot of these prisoners could lose their life, could lose hope because there is no respite from the situation yeah. a, a lot of um, control in this situation would lie with the inspecting officers, would lie with the mental health professionals who are assessing these prisoners from time to time to say that and, and I'm sure a great deal of responsibility falls on the lawyers who are handling these cases as well that are we making the assessments at the right time? Are we you know making sure that as soon as the person is of sound mind or is competent, we're making sure that they are brought in front of the judge again. This doesn't happen a lot of the times, which means that prisoners pending trial with mental illness might indefinitely be in these establishments. I don't know how many people are asking questions that are prisoners who are pending trials actually getting the kind of treatment and care that is required to make them fit to stand trial again? What if they are abused on the other side? What if they are just not given a chance at bail? They are not given a chance to reach the stand. What if somebody inside an establishment decides, okay, it is in my power, it's in my control. Let me just say that they are not fit. They're not ready. Are we asking these questions enough? You know, what happens in such a power imbalance? What is happening then? And in a sense, you know, prisoners with mental illness end up being sentenced or detained or punished even before their actual chance at a trial. If this is what the ground reality of the situation is. So, all this goes to say that, you know, claiming the insanity defense is not as easy and hunky-dory as a lot of people assume. Um, A lot of prisoners do actually end up suffering a lot more in the process. It is an adverse, adverse impact. And on the flip side, if they are detained in regular prisons, then there are other kinds of risks and harms that they could be exposed to. So, you know which is the lesser evil, or what is a less bad option? You know it comes down to something like that. Of course, there is there is a uh, you know call and pull on the legislature, on various other authorities and mechanisms, state machineries that start taking proactive steps to evolve procedural safeguards for prisoners who are pending trial and who are living with a mental health disability you know have processes working in a manner so that somebody does not end up indefinitely staying in mental health establishments in this way procedural safeguards have to be evolved from time right
0: no, i think you know that's that's a huge part of it right like realizing the consequence of certain elements in the law because as you said, like a lot of people feel that, you know, using the insanity defense is a quicker way to get out of a crime or, you know, to reduce in a way the punishment for the action that you've taken. So I think, you know, thank you so much, Asavri for being here and sharing your insights. Again, I think it's been a very, very enriching session. And I think this knowledge will help a lot of people who want to understand more, you know, especially from Not just the act, but how it sort of plays out and how mental health plays out within this legal context. Anybody who's watching this today, if you're having a hard time, you know, with your mental health, please know that, you know, there is help out there. Things do get better. So please reach out and, you know, you deserve to feel better. So till next time, please stay well and stay healthy. Thank you.